0: Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Marinwood. Wood. Thank you so much for joining me. Today on the podcast, I want to talk about two stories that have been circulating on social media this month. Both of these stories help illuminate the harm that comes to PhDs because of an academic culture that celebrates suffering and sacrifice as the only way for us to achieve the life that we want to have for ourselves. With too few good jobs and an abundance of talent within academia, institutions are not motivated to, to attract talent. There's an abundance of talent. There's abundance of people willing to accept low pay, work long hours, move anywhere to just remain in academia. And so what we've been seeing with the rise of adjuncts and the exploding number of postdocs is a bit of a race to the bottom. How little money do people need to offer in order to have somebody willing to teach high quality, excellent classes to students? How little can we pay in order to attract the best scientists to work in our labs? And because academia celebrates itself as a superior space, separate from you know, the, the sellout of industry, the dirty you know, capitalist culture, um, so many PhDs are willing to remain within academia in conditions that are not conducive for their own mental health, financial futures, or for those of their their families and and communities. The first story I want to talk about is a quit lit piece. A woman who had been working for eighteen years as a distinguished scholar at a university in upstate New York decided to finally walk away. She had been a distinguished scholar interdisciplinary for 18 years working to build program and curriculum focusing on environmental sustainability and climate justice topics that she's incredibly ap- passionate about during her time she delivered lectures across campus often as guest lecturer but she also taught her own courses in her own department so really contributing meaningful scholarship and teaching to this institution she worked with a faculty group to secure a grant to launch a Center for Climate Justice at this at this college. During this time, she was being paid just $31,050 a year. That's just less than $15 an hour if she was only working 40 hours a week. And I looked up uh, a, cus- some, a couple of comparisons. Um, for example, if you are a personal shopper at most Whole Foods in the United States, you start at fifteen dollars an hour. So after eighteen years, this woman was making fifteen dollars an hour. So, so my point is, you can do almost anything uh, and make fifteen dollars an hour. And you know, I chose personal shopper because right now, people willing to go into grocery stores to shop for us is um, you know an incredible service to our communities and a need that has really grown during the current climate uh, and conditions around COVID. But she's making less than a personal shopper at Whole Foods. Now that's not her reason for quitting. Her reason for quitting was because her university, like so many institutions around the world, has been hit with budget deficits because of COVID-19. And the college has been working on a strategic plan, including a focus on student-faculty ratios. So the institution is trying to figure out What is sustainable between the number of faculty on campus and the number of students that they're able to to bring to campus every year? So as part of this reorganization, many of her colleagues are actually being terminated from their contingent or non-permanent positions at the institution. Now, I haven't read the strategic plan of this institution or most institutions, and I do not envy the position of university presidents and provosts right now. Um, these are incredible, difficult times and incredible, difficult decisions. Um, but what, what is really shocking to me about the story is the salary, the $31,000 a year. And the amount of work that this person put into an institution who, who didn't value her. You know, after 18 years of building, programming, and dedicating her life to the mission of this organization, she, she's making almost no money. And the amount of lost wages and earning potential of this person who spent so many years working for such low pay, only to learn two decades later how little her contributions matter, is both staggering, uh, infuriating, but also heartbreaking. We know that humanities and interdisciplinary scholars are paid appallingly low in the United States. And so I applaud this person for walking away, for whatever her reason is, um she should walk away like this is this is a, a terrible situation that she's found herself in but of course i can't help but wonder in our current climate if this institution won't be able to replace this $31,000 a year salaried position with one for even less like how many people will be willing to apply for a job that pays even less than $31,000 a year with the hope that they can stay in academia With the hope that they can continue to publish and and work and on the assumption that this might be the only place where they could do climate justice or the work that they that they want to do. So I really hope that in that this person who's decided to walk away learns what we have learned through our research at Beyond the Professor, which is that there are so many ways for people with advanced degrees and an incredible range of skill to make meaningful contributions into society. We're not trapped in higher education. We might be there because we lack. The awareness of other opportunities, or perhaps there for this particular person, there was enough of a payoff between what she could earn elsewhere doing almost anything else and the work that she chose to do. But the research, the education, the programming there are lots of other spaces in which you can achieve these kinds of things in and around social justice causes. And there are many nonprofit as well as for profit companies who are very interested in taking action against climate change. And so there are a lot of opportunities for this particular person, but for those of us interested in social justice broadly, we're not limited just to academia unless we buy into this myth that there are a few spaces for us to do this work or have the life that we want. The, what we have to do as academics, as PhDs, is decide to opt out of this race to the bottom. We have to choose to take our, t- our talents and our skills and go elsewhere. Because so long as we are in this, the academy telling institutions that we will work for less than $15 an hour, they'll pay us that. And, you know, I'm Canadian uh, by birth. I was raised in Canada. I came to the States to do my PhD. So I'm here for unions. I'm here for collective bargaining. I'm here for all of those rights. But there is a reality within the United States in, in that that's not going to necessarily be a pathway that will alleviate this problem anytime soon. There are laws that regulate collective bargaining and unionization uh, that make it almost impossible in most states to achieve this. So until we are able to say, no, I will not work for $31,000 a year for you because I can go into industry or nonprofit and make two, three, four times this, and I can still make a difference, and I can be respected, and I have options, so that if my employer decides to stop paying me what I, I'm worth, I can go elsewhere. I'm not trapped. I don't have to blow up my life uh, here in Denver if I am working as a digital marketer and I don't want to work for that company anymore, I can go get another job. But you can't do that in academia. When you are in these positions, when you are in these tiny college towns, when you are uh, limited in the career pathway because there are few, too few jobs and just an enormous amount of talent well, now you're competing for the race to the bottom. The second artifact I want to talk about is a job posting that's also been making the rounds, uh, if you can call it a job posting. And so there's an elite institution in Boston, in their Women and Gender and Sexuality Studies program, they're seeking one to three scholars of any rank or discipline to apply for a visiting scholars program. Now, this Visiting scholars program is not funded or rather in the job ad, they say the person needs to be self-funded, meaning that you can get access to an academic institution if you land this visiting scholars position, but the institution won't pay you anything for your time or your labor. The job ad also, again, if we can call it that, promises email privileges, access to the library and participation in a reading and writing group. uh, So you can come to seminars and you can do work without pay. Um, depending on COVID restrictions, you may be able to share a common area and access the library. The requirement is for the visiting scholar to be in residence. So, were you to get this, you would have the opportunity to relocate at, on your at your own expense to live in the city where this in Boston. So, if you don't already live in Boston, there's no money to help you relocate. So, you have to pay for that relocation on your own. Now, there are, of course, a handful of scholars for whom this kind of position might make sense. So a good friend of mine is a full professor at a Canadian university, and she's taken up visiting scholar positions during her sabbaticals. uh, And so she would be self-funded in that she has a salary, and she's maybe doing archival research in a city, and being part of an intellectual community of scholars while she's on sabbatical would make sense to her. The problem is there's there's nothing in this job advertisement that restricts the position to people who have funding. And of course, there's the other issue of, um, if you are all are already in the system, well, now you can take advantage of this. But if you're not already in the system, well, we have no room for you, right? There's no funding there for you. So you already have to be winning in this system. You already have to have succeeded to land a position. Um, and if you're not that person, then... You know, are you willing to live off of savings? Do you have a, a partner? You know, what, is the, what are the other opportunities for people who don't have salaries to participate in this kind of visiting scholars program? I mean, it's slim to none. So yes, there are people who are already in the system, who already have landed uh, tenure track positions for whom these kinds of opportunities might be uh, advantageous that might help them with their scholarship. But there's nothing in this job ad that limits this the applications to people who are already employed elsewhere. And what to me was so interesting about this this posting was the way it was able to just touch on all of the pain points, all of the panic that adjuncts experience when they realize that they are slowly losing their position slowly losing their citizenships within the academic community, slowly being pushed out as excess, as part of the abundance that we cannot absorb into our system. For those of you who have been adjuncts or have been between academic positions, you know the slow process by which we are stripped of our citizenship within the academic community. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. I remember very well my own panic when I entered the ranks of adjuncts. Not being able to apply for jobs on university letterhead. Well, if you got this, you'd have letterhead. Losing my academic email address so I was no longer affiliated with the university. Ah, this one gives you an email address. Trying to figure out if how I could access a university library and learning that it really wasn't very possible. Ah, but this would give me library privileges. Not being able to access journal articles. You know, you can go to the library and read books, but you're blocked often as a, as a guest from accessing journal articles. Ah, oh, but this would solve that. Losing funding to travel to conferences, not being affiliated with a university when trying to publish all of these things that are a prerequisite of this prestige economy that is academia, you slowly lose those. You can feel them slipping through your fingertips and there's a panic that happens. So that's to me what makes these kinds of positions so problematic, is that whatever the decisions of this committee, um, and I hope, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm of mixed minds. Like, do I hope that they give it to somebody who has a salary, who can, who's already connected to an academic community, who already has. Uh, an email address and access the letterhead, but then it's less exploitative? Or do I hope they give it to someone without those things? But then how is that person going to feed themselves? Why are they giving them their labor to the institution? So these kinds of positions just feed on the fears of the desperate, those in the academic community that are slowly losing their place as scholars. This mismatch between the number of available jobs and the overabundance of talent. That's driving this race to the bottom is going to be with us for a while. Academia tends to hire in booms and busts. So, the first real boom was when baby boomers went to college. And so, it's actually not baby boomers who were hired, it's actually the generation just about 10 years older than baby boomers who were hired in huge numbers to staff universities in the late 1960s. And they were all given tenure, and then they remained within academia through the 70s and 80s, and began to retire in the mid-1990s. So you had this huge glut of faculty that were all around the same age, hired at very young, who had careers for 30 to 40 years. So you take like 1968, you add 30 years to it, well then that's when people begin to retire. At the same time, millennials were about to go to college, and so there was a concern amongst institutions that they wouldn't have enough faculty to teach all the millennials. So they began to hire more tenure-track positions in the late 1990s through to the early 2000s. So we have two things happening. We have retirement from those people hired to teach baby boomers, so not baby boomers, people that are about 10 years older. And we have an increase in the number of faculty that are being hired um, who are earning their degrees in the mid-1990s through to the early 2000s. But that hiring was going to stop probably around the time of the, of the Great Recession. So You can begin to see these bubbles. When you're looking at the data, data you can begin to see these bubbles um, forming and bursting through the timeline, through this, this timeline that I'm talking to you about. Now, right now, we have that cohort, all hired within 10 to 15 years, that are moving through the ranks from assistant to associate to full professors. And they're going to be in those positions for another 10 to 20 years. Meanwhile, Generation Z isn't going to be that much bigger than the millennial population, and in fact, the National Center for Educational Statistics predicts that college enrollment will only increase by about 5% over the next decade. Meanwhile, we, are ha- we see universities who are experiencing enormous financial crunches for a variety of different reasons. States are not providing as much money to state schools. Uh, there's an increased competition to attract students to build better buildings. There's also an increase in regulation. So there's an in- a demand for new staff to implement regulations, both at the state and the federal level, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a growth in the number of faculty, of staff positions that universities are required to have, uh, but they're not necessarily generating a whole lot of new revenue. And so they're beginning to look for ways to cut budgets, just like the, the, the institution uh, that we talked about at the, at the beginning of this podcast. And because there is an abundance of talent of PhDs who are willing to work for low wages, there's no incentive for institutions to pay more. They are incentivized to attract people to lead the institutions because those people will go elsewhere if they are not offered top, top, top dollar. But we have too many, again, too many people in the system that are willing to stay within academia at almost all costs because they are so terrified of what leaving means. The solution is that we must bleed the system of talent. We have to say no to our own exploitation. Now, my politics are for unions and for collective bargaining, but the political reality in the United States is like, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's certainly not going to happen to save your finances or save my finances to make sure that I'm able to retire, to make sure that I'm taken care of, that I am safe. And and I'm certain that many of the listeners are in the same position. We have to make capitalism work for us. Yes, we should vote progressively. Yes, we should criticize capitalism when we need to. but if we need to work within this market system in a way that is beneficial to us. So you should go to work at organizations that align with your values and interests, where you will be paid a, a livable wage and compensated for your talent, because you are voting with your talent and your time. You were saying, I am actually worth more. I know that I can do more. I know I can be better. I know I can work in better environments. And that's one of the big things that separates business from academia. Now, I know you're like, but Marin, like, there's all these exploitative situations. What about you know Walmart? What about Amazon uh, uh, warehouses? And like, yes, there are criticisms to be made. But when you talk to people who are in middle-class jobs and they work at Amazon, they like their jobs. You talk to people who work at Google, they like their job. You talk to middle-class people who work at Facebook, they like their job. Because those companies are competing for engineers and UX researchers and linguists and... Uh, uh, computer scientists and data scientists and marketers, they're all competing for talent and they want the best. And to get the best, they're willing to pay for the best because that's what the market demands. And you are the best. You are the best and the brightest. And so you need to move where people will pay you, where you will be respected, where you have opportunities, where you can make a living wage, and where you are not in a position of panic that, that long-term trauma stress, PTSD, that is part of academic culture, that is part of that adjunct hell, you need to step out of that, say no, and move on. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Job Search the Smart Way, a podcast for graduate students and PhDs. For more resources to help you launch your next great career, be sure to visit beyondprof.com and sign up for our free events and remember smart people work everywhere